this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Content Director with ACG's Media Group. Today's episode is part of our podcast series focused on family offices. In this series, we're covering a whole range of topics that are relevant to family offices today, everything from structure to succession planning, technology, and much more. The series is sponsored by RSMUS, a leading audit tax and consulting firm focused on the middle market. Each of our episodes in the series will feature a different RSM professional who focuses on the topic area we're talking about, to weigh in on the trends they're seeing among the family offices they work with, and to share their insights into some best practices. Today, my guests are RSM partners Ben Berger and Tommy Wright, who serve as the firm's national family office tax leaders. Our conversation today is going to look at some of the regulatory and policy changes family offices should be aware of. There was a ton of ground to cover here, so Tommy and Ben have narrowed the list down to five tax trends and other issues that family offices should be focused on as they plan for the future, and we'll walk through each of those today. Ben and Tommy, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Katie. Great to be here. So, Ben, the first item on the top five of this list is charitable planning. What are the changes underway here that family offices need to know about? Katie, there are a lot of uh, changes over the last several months that have been discussed in Congress, um, as we know, both in the House and the Senate, a variety of different proposals. With respect to charitable contributions specifically, there hasn't been a lot of proposals. However, there has been uh, a, a lot of things that have been discussed with respect to tax rates and potential increases in tax rates. And as we know, the general theme is the higher the tax rate, uh, the more beneficial the charitable contribution deduction is from a tax perspective. The only change being discussed today uh, with respect to potential tax rate increases is a surtax on gross income in excess of $10 million um, as one threshold and over $25 million as a second threshold with a maximum surtax of 8%. However, that surtax is applied to gross income, not on taxable income. And so as such, there's really no benefit or added benefit to making charitable contributions with a potential surtax that would be in place. We've had a a number of families that have gone through uh, large liquidity events or sales of businesses and are taking a look at making contributions via charitable trusts. Charitable lead trusts are really are a real popular option where you can move cash into a trust vehicle, which provides for charitable contributions or charitable annuities payments to a charity for a particular time period. And then at the end of that time period, whatever is remaining in that trust would ultimately go out to beneficiaries or children, et cetera. And the benefit there is you're if if structured properly you can obtain a full deduction for the cash that goes into that charitable trust today. So for example, if you set up a charitable lead trust with $20 million, you can take a deduction for that full 20 million. And then whatever is left at the end of that particular term of that trust would be able to go out to your children completely free of any gift tax if structured properly. The devil's in the details. Uh, There's a lot of fine print, but it's a really powerful option that you should be discussing with with your tax advisors. Uh, finally, just a few quick hit items with respect to uh, to charity, things to be aware of. We've had a number of, of families take a look at making contributions of unique assets to charity. For example, business interests, real estate interests. There is some planning available to do that. Just be careful. 
we've had families that have gone through um, have an LOI to sell to sell a large asset or business, and would be considering uh, shifting ownership or shifting or transferring that asset over to charity before the transaction. You have to really be careful around that, otherwise you'd run into what's called the assignment of income doctrine, which would force recognition of that income back to the donor rather than eliminating it if it's owned by the charity. Finally, and, and this is sort of an overarching point with respect to charity in general, you know, there are a lot of families that we work with that leave significant amounts of their estate to charity uh, at the time of their, of their passing and don't do as much lifetime gifting uh, to charity. And in our analysis of taking a look at a family that makes regular recurring lifetime gifting versus live, leaving significant amounts uh, at death and doing little lifetime gifting, we find that there could be close to a 59% increase in the amounts that ultimately would go to charity had that family done more lifetime planning than do it all at, at death. And the reason is because not only are you reducing the size of your estate and moving assets to charity during your lifetime, but on an annual basis, you're also receiving an income tax uh, deduction that saves income tax dollars and ultimately allows more dollars to be available for uh, for charity. So just something to think about for families that are very charitably inclined. Think about having an overall plan and, and mapping out that plan, taking a look at making contributions during your lifetime uh, versus waiting to do it all at death. The second item on the list here is estate planning. What are some of the issues that family offices should be aware of there? Well, families and family offices who are directing and helping those families should certainly consider taking advantage of all of the estate planning techniques, the tried and true techniques that exist out there. Number one on the list is the utilization of their lifetime transfer exemption, which is currently $11.7 million per individual, minus what they may have used during their lifetime for prior taxable gifts. And for a couple, you double that amount. So this exemption availability should be used uh, as soon as possible. You know, we had proposed legislation which was going to decrease this exemption that was removed from the House bill. And so it is very important. There is really no reason not to use the lifetime exemption. Secondly, uh, and I would say use it soon, under existing uh, law that was enacted in December of 2017 uh, under the Trump administration, when we got the increased estate exemption, it's set to expire on 1-1-2026. So we're going to lose that exemption as it currently stands in the law today. Uh, so again, why waste it? Use it. Secondly, to the extent that a family can make uh, gifts and take advantage of valuation discounts, another reason to accelerate that planning is to use those valuation discounts now and not wait. You know, the, the valuation discount legislation that was proposed again in the House Ways and Means Committee in mid-September created some limitations on its use and restrictions. Uh, that is no longer in the current House bill. But it is an area that can be changed via regulations issued by the IRS under the Department of Treasury. So with the risk of there being some curtailment of valuation discounts, another reason to go ahead, use those discounts now, use your exemption now. 
And of course, there's several tried and true techniques. There's sales to defective grantor trusts. There are on the charitable side, the charitable lead trust, the CLAT, with interest rates at their current levels. One would want to think seriously about creating CLATs because for a CLAT created in December, we have a 1% interest rate. So to the extent the assets placed in the CLAT appreciate greater than 1%, there will be some transfer made to the family members uh, from the senior generation. So that is a perfect technique to consider. I can come back to that and, and make another point later, time permitting. And then, of course, uh, another popular technique are the creation of SLATs, spousal lifetime access trusts, where spouses are creating trusts for the other's benefit. Uh, there are some issues, uh, so the trust can't be identical, so we have to make sure they're different, uh, maybe different in terms of time of creation. So maybe one spouse creates a SLAT this year, one spouse creates a SLAT next year. But those are techniques that can be used to use the exemption if the, if the other techniques are not of interest. And then, of course, grant or retain annuity trust, GRATs, which are essentially uh, very similar to CLATs in, in respect to they work off of interest rate factors. And so the interest rates that the government prescribes that we use for these techniques, uh, again, are low at this point and with a market performance uh, then they can be win-win strategies. Thanks for that, Tommy. Um, next up on the list was choice of entity. So I want to go back to you, Ben. How are proposed policy changes influencing the decision of whether to operate as a C-Corp or flow-through entity for a family office? It's a great question. And it, it's a timely topic because we work with a lot of family offices that are either going through a, a creation phase where they're you know, just getting going, they're just creating a family office, either because there was a large liquidity event, sale of a business, or because the family's accumulated sufficient wealth and complexity to create a family office. And the question is always, all right, well, how should we structure ourselves? You know, where should the investments be housed? What type of entity? What should be the family office management company or governing body? Should that be a C-Corp or a pass-through? And I would say that there's real compelling reason to take a look at a C corporation versus a pass through. And there really is no definitive answer. It's something that each family has to consider taking into account their goals and objectives and doing some long term financial modeling to take a look at what makes the most sense for them. You know, C corporations now have a, a tax rate of only 21% based on the, um, the legislation that was passed a few years ago under President Trump. Um, and that's a really compelling reason to, to have income being shifted over into a C-corporation because it's taxed at a relatively low rate, certainly lower than ordinary income is taxed uh, at an individual or a trust level. And so we've had you know, a majority of, of families, I would say, create C-corporations to be their family office management company. And there are other reasons, sort of non-tax considerations to look at with respect to choice of entity as well when looking at a C-corporation versus a pass-through. And that's beyond the scope of, of the call today. But families you know, should also be aware of, of some pros and cons. And just looking at the tax rate isn't the exclusive or the only thing that families should look at. You do want to look at accumulated earnings taxes or other pitfalls with respect to C-corporations. If C-corporations accumulate too much income or have certain kinds of income uh, that isn't passed out in the form of dividends, taxable dividends uh, to its shareholders, there could be additional 
taxes that could be incurred inside of the C corporation. So families need to be thinking about that as well. And you know, for families that are structured under a lender structure that was modeled after the, the famous lender case, there are always some things that you can do with respect to profits interest. And there's always a range of accepted profits interests that can be paid to the family office management company, especially if, if it's a C corporation. And perhaps it would make sense to shift more of that income, especially if it's ordinary income over to the C corporation and have a tax that only 21% could make sense for some families. Um, we do have some families that have family office uh, management companies that are structured as pass-throughs. And if you know those pass-throughs are owned, uh, for example, by long-term dynasty trusts, and you're looking for some significant growth inside of that family, uh, oftentimes a pass-through entity makes more sense than a C-corporation. But again, it, it's, it's a choice to look at. It's not something to, to just dismiss. Um, you do need to model it financially and take a look at what makes most the most sense for each family based on their goals and objectives. And importantly, also looking at the non-tax considerations as well as the tax considerations. Thanks for that, Ben. Um, that brings us to governance and succession planning. I should say this is going to be a topic of another episode within this series, so we will go more in-depth on this later. But for now, Tommy, can you walk us through at a high level why governance and succession planning is especially important for family offices to focus on now? Sure. And a good point, Katie. So touching on both the charitable planning and the estate planning, uh, everything in the realm of, a, of an ultra high net worth family needs to be done in a multi-generational approach, giving consideration to the multi-generational aspects of the family. So estate planning nor charitable planning should be done in a vacuum and should always consider the multi-generational aspects. The governance is is very important. You know, we have governance in in the forms of our trust agreements, our family limited partnerships, and our operating partnership agreements, our corporate documents. There's also the topic of governance within the family. How is the family going to relate to one another? You know, how are we going to set up the family board, this family board of advisors? and be involved with one another and be involved with the management of the family assets, be those liquid assets or be those operating businesses. So thought and consideration needs to be given to the governance structure and how we get that next generation of the family involved and what we do to educate that next generation so that they are prepared to lead the family in the future. So Succession as a topic is important not only with respect to the family members crossing multiple generations, but succession is important actually when you look at the employee framework of the family office. Perhaps a chief investment officer or a head of a family office, and um, you know, as those folks age and mature in life, we do need to uh, keep in mind the succession planning for the family office structure itself and its employees. And that's, uh, again, something that should not be disregarded. So the fifth item on our list is planning and reporting and the use of technology. This is a topic we're going to be talking about later on in the series, and we'll be touching on a, a product that RSM has called Family Site. But for now, Ben and Tommy, can you talk about some of the key issues here that family offices should understand as they plan for the future? Yeah, I can. I'll kick it off quickly. And Technology is critical, and maybe that's stating the obvious, but taking a step back, as I mentioned before, a lot of family offices are 
taking a hard look at their structure or they're just getting going with, with setting up their family office. And the family office structures today are a lot more complex than they were, I would say, even three, four, five years ago. All sorts of you know, special allocations and profits, interests and side pockets and you know, a lot of complexity with respect to investments. Gone are the days when families pool their assets together and everybody has a share of the same common pool of investments and everybody's just you know, taking a, a small piece of, of the family's overall investment vehicle. Everybody's investments are, are customized. You know, some family members want to be more aggressive with their investments than others. And so there's, there's a lot of customization and complexity that's built into that. And of course, the question for the family office is, how do you deal with that? How are you able to not only account for the activity afterwards, but stay ahead of it and do more proactive planning uh, and be able to create what-if scenarios and say, all right, well, if I sell this investment, here are the trusts and individuals that are going to recognize the gain versus not. And how do I take into account you know, pre-contribution gains and special layers, et cetera, et cetera. And so technology implementation at the at the outset of a family office creation, whereas family offices take a hard look at their structure is really critical. You don't want to have a 21st century family office from a structure standpoint, but have a 20th century technology platform that relies on things like Excel. And so I think taking a hard look at partnership tiering and allocation software and consolidated reporting software, and and taking a look at software that has the artificial intelligence and the business intelligence components built into it that allow the different technologies to talk to each other and and run sorts of all sorts of planning scenarios is really critical to a successful family office. Tommy, I'm sure you have other things you want to chime in on. Well, I think, uh, Ben, all those points you've made are very, very good. And I like to analogize it to an old automobile commercial, you know, it was no one wants your father's Osmobile. So we often find that family offices exist that were created by the parents or the grandparents, or maybe even generations up the line. And it's really important that the family office keep up to date with respect to technology, to gain efficiency, you know, to avoid laborious tasks, one of the things we've done in our family office practice was to go out and interview a number of family offices to uh, determine what their pain points were, what their issues were, their problems, where they would like to see better efficiency. And uh, as I recall, Ben touched on this, uh, the current use of a lot of Excel-based data files being manually manipulated, et cetera, et cetera. So What we determined is that technology really is uh, a necessary integral part of the management of the family office and the ability to create data that will allow the family to make appropriate decisions on a timely basis. We have developed a tool at RSM called Family Site, which is in essence a dashboard uh, that provides families information and data for making decisions and allows them to access various technology tools that we have uh, developed. Family site is the overall dashboard. Uh, there's an integral part called partner site that deals with complexities of tiered partnership structures, the production of K1s, the allocation, the uh, difficult and technical allocations of partnership items is another tool. And then we have other 
uh, reporting mechanisms. One that is a data aggregation, data analytics tool, which goes out to over 900 custodians and captures data through APIs and consolidates it for ease of reporting and management at the family office. And we're constantly adding additional technologies and tools to this platform, and it's gaining great acceptance in the marketplace. Great. And before I let you go, I I do know um, earlier on in the conversation, Tommy, you had alluded to another point on estate planning that we were going to save to the end. So I wanted to see if you had any final thoughts on the estate planning theme you wanted to add. Thank you, Katie. Uh, So, you know, very important tool that is sometimes overlooked is the use of intra-family loans. So the senior generation making loans to the younger generation or to trusts and taking advantage of the interest rates that the government makes us charge on these intra-family loans. You know, with the unprecedented uh, low rates that we have, uh, we can lock in some long-term lending and really take advantage of low rates. For example, uh, for the month of December, if a long-term loan were made to a family member or to a trust, that interest rate that's required to be used is 1.9%. So if the borrower can take those funds and invest them wisely and outperform uh, the 1.9% interest rate over that period of time, then you've got an arbitrage and you're, you're shifting wealth to the, uh, to the next generation. So very important technique. I was going to uh, allude to a CLAT structure. So uh, in talking with an investment advisor recently, they gave the example of a billionaire family who had in place testamentary CLATs. So CLATs that would be created at death through the will. The patriarch and matriarch were in their 90s. They obviously, they're extremely wealthy. They don't need these funds to live on for the remainder of their life lifespan. Why wouldn't you create a lifetime CLAT and start the shifting of wealth, hopefully now? Um, and they went back and did an analysis using you know, Monte Carlo simulation. And the answer was quite surprising because intuitively you would think the best answer is to create those in that particular set of circumstances was to create that lifetime clat rather than waiting for it to be um, operative at death. And the answer was, maybe not. Maybe the, uh, the testamentary clat was the way to go simply because it's not purely the interest rate play, but you've got to look at what is the performance of those assets that you're placing in the CLAT, market volatility, and with the uh, outlook for investment results over the next, you know, over the next short run of years, let's say five to ten years, uh, we all know fixed income investments produce very little uh, in terms of r- returns today, and so uh, equity markets are forecast to be, you know, maybe five, five point eight, six percent returns, uh, and so. In their analysis, basically, they concluded that the testamentary clats were the uh, way to go. That's an anal- That's the kind of analysis that needs to be done. Because as I said, as, as the gentleman was explaining this to me, I thought, well, immediately, well, of course, the lifetime, uh, forming the clat during lifetime would be more beneficial. But, you know, you have to consider all the factors. One other thing I would add is that the estate gift and a transfer tax exemption for 2022 is now 12,060 per person. So for a couple, that's 24,120. 
you know, I'd referenced earlier that the exemption was 11.7. That's, of course, the amount for 2021. So our inflation adjustment has kicked in. I'll also mention that the annual gift exclusion that we normally think of of $15,000 a year inflated to $16,000 a year, January 1st, 2022. Um, and then one other closing comment, and that would be, you know, upon reflection, I do feel strongly that while we may not see tax legislation uh, that's currently in the form of the Build Back Better Act, there are always regulatory positions that the Treasury Department and the IRS can take, which can have a negative impact on our estate planning technique. So again, the watchword is plan, do it now, take action, don't hesitate. Your clients, your family offices need to use this exemption. They need to take advantage of every estate planning angle that's available uh, because we don't know when things can change in the future. Okay, well, we'll wrap things up there, but we will pick back up with the next installment of this series. For listeners who are subscribed in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can look for that next episode in your feed, or you can also keep an eye on the middlemarketgrowth.org website. We'll be posting the next episode there too. Ben and Tommy, really appreciate your top five. It's been great speaking with you today and appreciate your time joining me on the podcast. It was a pleasure. We appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard today, please give us a rating and write a review. It really does go a long way in helping other listeners find out about us. This podcast is produced by the Association for Corporate Growth, the largest membership association for middle market M&A and corporate growth professionals. We host networking events across the world. We publish magazines and special reports and much, much more. Learn more about the benefits of membership at acg.org and consider joining us as a member. Last thing, if there is a topic you want to hear us talk about on this podcast, a guest you think would be great, or even if you just have some general feedback you want to share, we would love to hear about it. Please send us a note to editor at acg.org. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.